0: Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of the Europeans with me. Dominic, speaking to you from Amsterdam, and my wonderful co-host Katie Lee in Paris.
1: No, not in Paris. I'm in London this week.
0: Oh, well, how am I meant to know? Is it Skype?
1: It's nice here. It's very cold, much like the rest of Europe.
0: Yeah, is it nice there? My family have been like moaning and groaning about how horrible it is in London at the moment.
1: Uh, There's still some bits of snow on the ground in places. I flew into Luton Airport yesterday and it was very snowy and my glasses got really fogged up.
0: Oh, poor you.
1: Which was not very glamorous. It is thawing out, which is nice because it has been freezing cold across the entire continent i think you've had like proper frozen canals and stuff in amsterdam
0: oh it's been amazing although i have mainly been locked inside a windowless building but when they occasionally let me out i mean i must clarify i'm not imprisoned i am just working really hard at the moment in an opera house and yeah but i did manage to go out yesterday afternoon and have a little wander on the ice while my husband and his father were skating beautifully with the Rijksmuseum in the distance, with all those paintings of people skating in the 18th and 19th century, it felt very romantic.
1: Wow, but you didn't get on the actual skates yourself, how come? Because of your bad experiences with winter sports.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was only six weeks ago I broke my shoulder skiing with the same two people. Um, and I thought <laughs> having another adventurous experience with skates was not a good idea. Walking was scary enough for me.
1: What was it like walking on the ice? Could you hear like cracking under your feet and stuff?
0: It was so amazing. The noise of the skates on the ice is so beautiful. It's, it's literally the first time in my life I've ever been on real ice, I think. Yeah, I think I've only ever skated in indoor ice rinks and it's really something quite different. And it just like opens up a whole part of the city that isn't used other than by tourist boats. Yeah. It's so amazing. And they're they're quite clever about it in Amsterdam. A week before it froze over, the council stopped boats going down certain routes in the hope that it would freeze over and settle.
1: Oh, that's nice that they kind of prioritise all the skating fun.
0: It is. And only a few people fell through. (laughs)
1: That is the grimmest thing
0: But it was really fun other than that And it was just like my father-in-law was saying That it's one of the few truly communal experiences Everyone from all different parts of society Come together to do this thing That doesn't really cost any money Other than a pair of skates And that's a traditional thing A bit like carnival in the south of the country And in Germany Where everyone comes together And feels gezellig Which is kind of cosy and nice in Dutch
1: Oh, that is lovely. Do you know what cosy is in French? No. Cosy. Ah, lovely. And there's this other new word that's been gaining in popularity recently, which is cocooning. So at the weekend, if it's cold, you could do a bit of cocooning with your loved ones, which means wrapping up in a duvet like a big bug
0: oh nice so have they just stolen that from cocooning the english word
1: yeah but they always get really surprised when i tell them that people don't say cocooning in english they're like why don't you say it this is a great word and i think they're kind of right it is a nice word i agree yeah i'm gonna start saying that i love cocooning maybe since it is so cold out now would be a good time to wrap up in a duvet and listen to this great show that we have coming up um i have one more anecdote though okay go on hit me up (laughs) what else has been going on
0: so i got my hair cut this week and it was a slovenian hairdresser who cut my hair and he asked me where i was from and i was like i'm from england and he was like oh yeah english people are really ugly aren't they Um, and he was like, Dutch people are beautiful. It's why I live here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh wow, Slovenian people are really blunt. <laughs>
1: Oh man, is is that what we're known for by the rest of the continent?
0: Apparently, I mean, his evidence was from Skins, the Channel 4 programme. He was like, I was amazed when I was a teenager watching Skins and there were all these people that were, that were like the handsome leads that were actually quite ugly.
1: Oh man. I actually thought the people in Skins were quite attractive. Because you're English and you have lower standards than Slovenians. No, but...
0: Some of them have gone on to be Hollywood stars like Daniel Kalea who is going to be heading to the Oscars tonight and Nicholas Holt. So,
1: Is this whole episode going to turn into a defense of like how good looking English people are? Yes. Okay let's just talk about that for half an hour.
0: I mean actually we are speaking to some quite interesting people today so maybe I'll let this one go and we will call up Marco in Sweden.
1: This week we're going to be learning a new language English, Dominic, but not English as you know it, because this is Euro-English. It is a new and developing uh, form of English, which some linguists think after Brexit, is going to be developing into a real kind of force of its own on the continent. Uh, So we're going to be calling Marco Modiano. He is a linguistics expert who has been studying this new dialect just to work out where it came from, really, and where it might be going in the years to come.
0: We might have to break our Brexit ban this week because he has written a paper on the English language in the EU post-Brexit. But um, we promise we will not talk about Brexit negotiations at all. And we hope you forgive us for this little oversight
1: little tiny mention of the b-word and then we're going to be going green in germany at least Uh, there's been a massive court ruling there this week which gives cities the right to ban diesel cars to fight pollution this is something that cities across europe have been considering as a means of bringing down pollution that is really getting out of control from paris to madrid to athens
0: there's also been diesel news in rome where the mayor proposed that diesel vehicles should all be banned by 2024 one year before Paris is also expected to implement a ban so there's diesel news all over there was no way we could
1: avoid talking about it. (laughs) You make it sound like we were really dreading talking about it and to be fair like it's something I was a little bit intimidated by as a topic because I don't really know that much about how our cars work which is really shameful so I think it's good I think it's good that we're talking about it. So we've got Eckhard Helmers on the line he is an expert on all things diesel to explain what it all means. He's a
0: professor. (laughs)
1: But first, should we have Good Week, Bad Week? I was thinking since you're an opera singer, maybe you should like sing us a little jingle for it.
0: Good week, bad week. No, I'm not sure about that.
1: We could maybe get Jim to remix it.
0: Good week, bad week.
1: Yeah, that's not bad. Anyway. um. <laughs> Good week. <laughs> no,
0: no, stop it. It's my day off singing, don't make me sing.
1: I thought that was beautiful. You need the practice, come on. Anyway, I thought we were going to be talking about the Italian election this week, potentially as a good week for Silvia Berlusconi, but uh, it turns out the results are going to be in a little bit too late for us to know what has happened for this week's episode. In the meantime, who else has had a good week? It's
0: been a good week for Angela Merkel. Uh, She can now go ahead and form another grand coalition. Groko. Oh yeah, Groko, sorry.
1: It's actually more like Groko, I think.
0: Groko. Groko. Between her Christian Democratic Party and the Social Democrats, the SPD. Uh, So this is due to the approval from rank and file members of the Social Democratic Party who surprisingly overwhelmingly voted in the affirmative to allow the leadership i don't think it's a surprise that they voted in the affirmative but they voted by a bigger margin than people expected 66 percent of members voted to support the coalition deal Um, and it's really good news for angela because it means that she can continue on as chancellor albeit uh, a weakened chancellor considering she's had to sacrifice more power than she would have liked to the SPD, including the key finance ministry.
1: For the second time in the history of this podcast, she's been uh, the recipient of Good Week, despite all this talk about her having a really tough time. So we stopped this podcast in November. We've been without a proper government in Germany for the whole of that time. And all that time, there was loads of talk abroad of her being finished and this being the biggest political crisis for Germany since World War II. I'm starting to wonder if all of that was a little bit overstated, really. Although, I think
0: some people would argue that it's just delaying the crisis in Germany, potentially. Like, it means another few years where there's going to be an EU friendly government in Germany, which is great for the EU. But the SPD, the Social Democratic Party, are just like delaying the fact that their support has completely plummeted and it's looking like it's even worse since the election. But then again, everything can change in a few years. So, who knows what will happen when the next election comes? comes around. So that was good week. Uh, who who have you chosen for bad week, Katie?
1: It has been a bad week for press freedom in Slovakia. Uh, you might have seen the awful news that 27-year-old Slovakian investigative reporter Jan Kudsek and his fiancée were murdered at their home near Bratislava this week. They were shot in the head and chest in what looked very much like a contract kidding. And uh, the whole country is in shock, really. Uh, Jan was this young, very promising reporter. He reported on corruption. And at the time of his murder, he was reporting on the Italian mafia, allegedly hooking up with local politicians to try and steal EU funds. It was this really crazy investigation that he was working on that started with him looking into why the prime minister, Robert Fiso, had hired a Miss Universe contestant with no political experience as an assistant. And it was basically his reporting to this that led to these potential connections to mafia members. Uh, So this potentially went right to the top of the country, to politicians quite close to the prime minister, Robert Fiso. It was really important reporting that he was doing. So it's been a very strange week in Slovakia. People are very shocked by this. At one point, Fiso gave a press conference where he offered a million euros in cash as a reward for information in the case. And it was a quite surreal situation because he was standing there saying, oh, I don't have any mafia links. Uh, just standing next to this big pile of cash on the table, which it just didn't look that good. The Miss Universe contestant and the MP that hired her both resigned, although they would say that they didn't do anything wrong. Seven people got arrested, but then they all got freed again. Probably the only uplifting thing that has happened this week is that Slovakians have really not taken this lying down. There have been thousands of people marching through the streets across the country this weekend saying, We won't stand for this. We are not going to let gangsters operate here with impunity. And people will be punished for this. He didn't finish his last article, but his colleagues at Actuality, the website where he worked, they finished the article for him. They fact-checked it and they published it. And loads of rival news organisations across Slovakia have published it too, in solidarity. And we will certainly be sharing it too. I think it's been translated into English, so we can share that across our platforms as well.
0: It's definitely been a sad, sad week for journalists, probably across the continent but it's really nice to see everyone banding together and not letting this silence the investigation
1: so dominic i'm glad that you're here because we need to schedule some punctual meetings to precise the planification of the podcast
0: okay yes we shall do that um i don't speak the same language as you i don't understand
1: This form of kind of weird bureaucratic EU English, which has developed as its own thing, But uh, separately, there are linguists that are saying that as English is spoken more and more as a second language across the continent, there is, in fact, a separate European version of English that is emerging, which is kind of fascinating.
0: I also, living in the Netherlands, feel like I am inclined to speak a bit of Euro-English myself. Um, It really just starts to set in. Like, I have a lot of native English speaker friends who've started saying, instead of saying, like, either this or that... They say, or this, or that, because that's what they say in Dutch. I've occasionally done it myself as well. It's not a conscious decision. My favorite thing, though, about European English is when Dutch people translate Dutch proverbs into English, and they don't make sense. Like, there's one that my husband used yesterday saying, don't put salt on every snail, (laughs) Uh, which uh, I think means, like, don't nitpick or don't, uh, don't focus on every little negative detail.
1: Don't you kill snails by putting salt on them, though? Do you? Yeah, it, like, melts them away because they're all gooey and stuff, doesn't it? Oh, that's sad.
0: I mean, you would know you're in the land of eating snails.
1: I'm a snail murderer. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but EU English. I didn't realise this was a thing until fairly recently. Thank you, by the way, to our listeners, Sergio in Stockholm and Marcio in Strasbourg, for pointing us to some links on this topic, because I just really didn't realise it was a thing. So we try not to talk about Brexit that much on this podcast, but one of the less boring effects of Brexit is that people have been talking about... Britain leaving the EU, what effect that's going to have on the way language is used. There's going to be obviously more and more people in Brussels and beyond in the EU speaking English as a second language, which is going to lead to some quirks in the way that we use it. I think. Yeah,
0: and has done already. I mean, there's a long history of adapting English for international purposes. Um, For example, there's a term in the Netherlands called uh, Stain Coal Engels, which is brown coal English. And it's been around since the Dutch harbour workers would have to greet the English merchants who arrived on their ships and find a way to communicate with them, even though they didn't speak the same language. And they found this like basic, often incorrect, but functional way of speaking that meant that they could both understand it and that's just one example of uh, the ways in which uh, language is adapted and and it evolves so that people can communicate i think people are often quite uh uptight in the uk about english being bastardized but actually language always evolves and i think it's quite elitist of us to be too snooty about language changing. So I'm quite excited about this new form of Euro-English and I look forward to learning more about it.
1: With Marco Modiano. He is a linguistics professor at Jävle University in Sweden and he's got some quite interesting arguments about the way that English is going to be developing as more and more people on the continent speak English as a second language.
0: I was wondering if you could start by giving us like a brief history or explainer of how English became the widely accepted lingua franca of the EU.
2: It began certainly after World War II in Northern Europe. We had a movement away from German as the most common second language to study, and English became mandatory and important, uh, certainly in the 60s, throughout Northern Europe. And we see a similar development in the Netherlands. Both French and German declined in the 1960s and 1970s, but it was perhaps the television broadcasting, especially film, things like CNN through the 80s that made uh, English very attractive to young people. By the end of the 20th century, more than 75% of young people across uh, Europe were learning English and not learning other traditional second and third languages. In the last 15 years or so, it's just accelerated uh, along with the global acceleration of English throughout the world.
1: Can you give us a couple of examples of things in European English that might sound a little bit strange to native speakers of British English?
2: It's actually standard English with some interjection of local regional pronunciation. There are two instances in pronunciation which... Are showing signs of becoming systematic. And one is the pronunciation of cooperation. Europeans are saying corporation. Mm. And the other is uh, unique instead of unique. unique. Yeah, in our observations, we see that Europeans do that and they don't flinch and they understand each other and they don't ask for clarification. And it seems to be that you can use the word unique to mean unique and everything's just fine and dandy.
1: And in, in terms of um, people speaking a specific dialect, you know, within Brussels, these these words that you kind of hear around the EU, like planification, cometology, how long has that been around? That's
2: been around for a long time. And actually, that is not the phenomenon that we are studying. That is a language spoken by Eurocrats. What we're looking at more is uh, general and rather mild changes in pronunciation and even, to some extent, uh, expressions and so on. To make it very simple, one could say that a lot of people in mainland Europe now feel comfortable with their accents. And in the past, that was not the case. In the past, people felt as if they were not really doing well if they didn't achieve near-native proficiency. The goal of near-native proficiency is kind of gone, more or less, and that has been replaced by a kind of pride in being a multilingual European who can communicate proficiently in English.
0: The thing I really like about your theory of Euro-English is this kind of anti-elitist way of speaking, which appeals to me.
2: What we're doing is we're taking the English language away from the native speaker and telling them that we're going to do whatever we like with it and we don't care what you think. People who use the language own it and can do what they want with it. Europe's going to do what they want with English and the British are leaving and so that's it, game up. And now something new is going
1: to come. Do you reckon 15 years down the line when we're still making this podcast, we're going to be recording it in Euro English instead of British English?
0: I kind of think we are already because we both live outside of the UK and have kind of taken on our regional dialects.
1: The other day I tried to say something was mediatised. Oh dear. (laughs) <laughs> Meaning that it's been covered a lot in the media. But I really wish that word did exist in English. I think I might try and make it happen.
0: Yeah, it would be great. I also think there are a few words in Dutch that we don't have in English, like spannend, the word for scary, exciting, which we just don't have. So I just say that and everyone understands and it's nice.
1: Spannend. So that means exciting, like a roller coaster is exciting. Yeah.
0: So if you like, you've just been offered a new job, it's spannend. Oh. Because it's like terrifying, but exciting.
1: Do you know what isn't spunance, but it's just terrifying? What? Pollution. Good segue, Katie. Thank you.
0: So last week, the German Federal Administrative Court ruled that cities have a right to ban diesel cars due to their contribution towards toxic pollution. So this was following cases in lower courts in Stuttgart and Dusseldorf that had introduced bans in their highly polluted cities. This is a really big step and could start a domino effect if other cities bring similar cases to the courts. Actually, it's not the city that brought the case, it's some uh, environmental pressure groups. But um it, yeah, it, it, it's being celebrated by environmentalists who argue that diesel is incredibly damaging for the environment. I say argue, but I don't really think there's an o- another side to that argument.
1: I just wanted to like kind of get straight like why diesel is bad. You know, as someone that I've barely driven a car since I passed my driving test years and years ago. Oh my
0: God, like me.
1: That's why we're friends. <laughs> That's why we're friends, because we know nothing about diesel. But for anyone else who is shamefully ignorant about how cars work, the reason that Europe went really big on diesel, when America hasn't gone really big on diesel, is uh, basically that it was supposed to be more fuel efficient and therefore produce less emissions than petrol. And like way back in the 90s, Europe was like really trying to fight global warming by doing that. But ironically, uh, they also produce a lot of sooty crap, these diesel engines, that goes into the air and gives people breathing problems.
0: I remember when my parents bought a diesel car in the late 90s because it was meant to be cheaper and more environmentally friendly. Yeah. What a mistake. That's quite a big boo-boo. Boo-boo, sorry. (laughs)
1: It's a funny word.
0: There are various different policy changes uh, happening throughout Europe at the moment with regards to diesel cars. For example, this week, the mayor of Rome proposed banning diesel vehicles in the city in 2024. It looks like they're going to be banned in Paris in 2025. Mm -hmm. Oslo has experimented with banning it on certain days when there's bad weather that traps the diesel fumes under a layer of warm air, I think. So it feels like Things are changing and perhaps that's partly due to increased public pressure after the PR disaster of Volkswagen gassing monkeys and pretending they weren't creating as much gas as they were.
1: As talked about on this very podcast. As talked about previously, yes. And now these changes might be coming to Germany, the country that invented diesel, in fact, uh, Mr. Rudolf Diesel. Did you know that's why diesel is called diesel? No, I did not know it was a surname. That's very interesting, Katie. Well done. Thank you. Fact of the day. Um, so yes, these changes may now be coming to Germany and it's going to potentially affect millions and millions of people who bought diesel cars, in fact, subsidised by the government. Something that, that we're going to be talking about in a minute with Eckard is that the uh, German government has traditionally had very close links to the auto industry and has kind of been in their thrall, really, at the cost of our lungs, it now seems, which isn't great. We decided to call an
0: expert, a professor of diesel fumes. I'm not <laughs> that's sure that's what he'd call himself. Definitely not his <laughs> job title. No. Uh, but we are speaking to the very eminent professor Eckhart Helmers, uh, who is at the University of Applied Sciences in Trier.
1: In Southwest Germany. First question for me, Eckhart, what does diesel do to your health? Like, why should we be worried about how much we're using diesel in Europe?
3: Diesel is the reason for one of the highest uh, life risks as Europeans. There are tens of thousands of Germans, for example, and as well in other countries, European countries, uh, dying a premature death because of uh, the inhalation of the nitric oxides. But ev- who cares about these numbers? I mean, everybody believes that he or she is not uh, not affected
0: but just the others. Yeah, it's strange that this is an area in which people seem to be able to ignore it, whereas with deaths from terrorism or a terrible flu virus, people get much more wound up. I wonder why it is. It's now pretty much proven that diesel technology is really bad. It's worse than petrol. Why did the German car giants invest so heavily in diesel?
3: That's quite easy to answer. It took off in the mid-1990s, At the beginning of the 1990s, we had a little bit more than 10% of diesel cars among new registrations, and then in the mid-1990s, we had some 20-plus percent, and then it took off because of the Kyoto Protocol, and European governments, the European Union, wanted to decrease the carbon dioxide emissions of newly registered cars, and The cheapest solution has been the diesel technology. And the situation in USA and Japan uh, was totally different. I mean, USA didn't sign the Kyoto protocol, but uh, Japan did so. They didn't want to have diesel cars. They banned diesel cars, interestingly, in the 1990s. And so the Japanese car makers had to invest some billion dollars to develop a new technical alternative. And that was the electro-hybrid, electro petrol hybrid car. That was very expensive for them. But for the European car industry, they simply saved this amount of money. And in addition, it was a very smart uh, politics of protectionism because on the European market, it's not only the Germans. There's no difference with the French car makers and the Italian car makers. They compete with the the Japanese car makers. And they were very um, successful in the 1990s. So that's the
0: reason. Are you optimistic following this court ruling that things might start to change on a wider scale, not just these two cities?
3: When we look back, we have had 20 years of diesel car boom, and that will not be changed within a few years. I mean, um, there are millions of owners of these cars. That is the problem for politicians. They have to be very careful with these people because they, these are voters. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, are there any cities across Europe, Eckhart, that in your opinion are doing a particularly good job of fighting pollution?
3: It is very difficult for the cities to fight pollution. The only thing they can do, this is what we learn from London or from Stockholm or from Oslo, they can close their cities for part of the cars, for the most dirty cars. Most mayors don't like to do so, to, to prevent cars from entering, entering the cities because they depend on the voters as well. And these people drive these cars. If you look to, to the Netherlands, for example, they have been very successful in promoting bicycles. The cities, they look different. With a bicycle, you drive faster to the city centre than with a car, for example. Absolutely, this yeah. Is, this is what the, what the cities
1: can do. Today, Angela Merkel got some very good news that she's going to be able to form a new government. Her government is, her party is very close to the car giants. And even her coalition partners, the Social Democrats, the unions uh, from the car giants are very close to them. So is there any suggestion that anything's really going to change there?
3: Not so much, unfortunately, no. <laughs> Maybe with the next election. <laughs> only a few years to wait it all depends on public pressure and the public pressure is growing and it may lead to some action angela Merkel is known that she acts on public pressure she has done that several times so everything can happen
0: so katie you better get rid of that diesel car otherwise echo will be very sad
1: haven't got a diesel car stop bad mouthing than me i like barely ever drive i did however buy a new bike this week and uh, i was really happy to get back on it but now every time i jump on it i think i'm just going to be thinking about all the like particles of crap that are going into my lungs which is nice that's
0: horrible you need to get one of those uh, special like bicycle face masks yeah and look like you're really paranoid
1: i might just use a snorkel for now that's all i've got but i mean actually i was
0: reading this article recently saying that All these toxic things within our house are, like, even more dangerous than the horrible toxic particles that we get from things outside the house. So, like, having bleach in the house and cooking on gas creates terrible pollution inside your apartment slash house.
1: Yes, there really are threats everywhere. It's terrifying. I feel like we need some cheering up now. Should we have a happy ending?
0: Yay! Okay, so our happy ending this week is for the people of Austria, who now have the legal right to swear or make obscene gestures at politicians yay Uh, yay so this is after the vice chancellor and member of the far-right freedom party hein christian strache lost a case in the appeals court against a group of left-wing activists who had been sticking their finger up at him in a video and telling him to f off um f being in the place of a ruder word, because we do not want an explicit rating on this podcast. Thank you. Um, There is one caveat, and that is that you are allowed to swear at them, but you have to have a justification for being rude to the politician. You can't just go around like sticking your finger up at any politician willy-nilly. I'm talking to you, Katie Lee.
1: Why would I be the one who does it willy-nilly? I know what you're like. (laughs) So yeah, that's the happy ending. It's very happy. Do you know what I think we should do? What? Work out some rude things to say to politicians in EU English and go around saying them. And we'd be exercising a democratic right in doing that. It's perfectly justifiable. <laughs> So, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Europeans. We hope wherever you are in Europe, you are staying warm, maybe doing a bit of cocooning like we do in France. And yeah, while you're there wrapped up in your big warm duvet, why don't you write us an iTunes review to help us spread the word about the podcast? We would love it if you gave us a nice big five gold stars. Or four, if you fancy. Or less. Whatever. No.
0: Just five. (laughs) If you're going to give us four then, Um, actually, I... Think we don't need any more reviews, I think we are closed for the
1: weekend. We're fine. You can also follow us on Twitter, we are there at europeanspod or on Instagram at europeanspodcast. And Facebook, if you just search The Europeans.
3: Yay!
0: Thank you to our wonderful guests, Dr Marco Modiano and Professor Eckhard helmers uh, We will be back next week, before you know it, with some wonderful guests from across our fair continent.
1: Bye, everyone. Have a great week and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.